0: God has wonderfully designed, among other things, two very special environments. Environments that are essential to the, the nurture and the well-being of the human soul. The human spirit. Can you think of what those two environments might be? The home and the church. The home and the church. Those are two absolutely critical environments for every single human being. That God has designed, he's given for us, for our nurture and for our well-being. And that life might be full, that our life might be blessed. There's a phrase that I use and and I really believe this that the, that the home and the church both must be a refuge for imperfection. And many times they're not. Many times, the home is not a refuge for imperfection, but it's a place that that children and husband or wife go to and they barely can stand it, for there is not a refuge there. It's a place of constant judgment, ridicule, condemnation, and to some degree, rejection. And for lots and lots of people, the church has proven to be that also. The church has, institutionally speaking, The church has been an environment not so much for people to feel they be safe and accepted and valued and loved and so forth, but rather a place where people feel judged, condemned, and ultimately rejected or rejectable. And we've been talking for some weeks now about the whole theme of grace and we've been talking about grace in the home as opposed to the things that mark and set out a a legalistic kind of home environment we've been talking about the husband-wife relationship and to some degree and the parent-child relationship how do you convey grace to a child how do you in that environment discipline a child and help a child's life have structure and order and direction I want to change the focus this morning. I want to talk to you about legalism in the church. Moving away from the home, that first environment, and we're moved to the second environment. And as I describe those things that are characteristic of legalism and how legalism is conveyed in the church, I want you to bear in mind it's not at all my feeling that we have a legalistic church. Our church is a very gracious church. Our church is has its share of problems, has its share of difficulties, of course. But I think the prevailing environment, the prevailing attitude, the prevailing feeling, the prevailing sense is that this is a place where you can come and be safe. Now, certainly we fall short on that on occasions as... We will certainly do. But the challenge is that we're always working and trying to be sensitive to that great need and that great purpose for the church. Now, when we talk about being in an environment uh, <coughs> of grace and a, and a place where people can come and it's a refuge, please don't misinterpret misunderstand grace as meaning permissiveness. When, the, when we talk about the home being a safe place, it's not a safe re- place where you can do whatever you want. It, the church is not a place where you come and you just do whatever you want. And church is remember community. Church is people gathering together. It's not church is not a building. The church meets in a building. You can have church with two people, or two hundred people, or two thousand people. But it's vital that we understand and recognize what legalism in the church looks like. So that we continue to keep up our guard. Peter says, be on your guard. For your enemy, the devil, is roaming about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, what, devour. Paul says, we are not unaware of the schemes of the devil. We're very aware of the schemes of the devil. For he's trying to gain footholds in individual lives and as well in lives of congregations to bring division, and discouragement, obviously planting deceit, and ultimately death. And so legalism, is, it's vital that we understand, see what it looks like and how it can be conveyed in the church, not at all, that in any substantial degree that it's marking our church. Now as we talk about legalism, we talk about legalistic attitudes and legalistic habits. We've done that for some time now we realize that these attitudes and habits are prevalent in so many aspects of life. And because they are prevalent in so many aspects of life, it should not be a surprise to us that also the church can be, and has been in the past, itself an agent of non-grace and sometimes a very deadly agent of non-grace to people. Let me describe to you what I mean. The church has always concerned itself with two things, basically. First of all, on one hand, the church has always concerned itself with sin and wickedness, right? Or to phrase it another way, righteousness. Aren't we, as as people of God, zealous for righteousness? Don't we want to see God glorified in people's lives together and everybody walking uprightly? We're concerned about these things. We're concerned about sin. We're concerned about wickedness. But on the other hand, the church has a concern that people live and learn to live according to God's law. Now, we define His law as the law of love, don't we? We understand that. We've talked about that here, and we continue to talk about God's law of love you love you, Lord, your God, with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and there in your neighbors, yourself. yourself, Jesus says you have fulfilled all the law and all the prophets. All the requirements of the law are fulfilled in those two commands. So it's a law of love. But sometimes the church comes up short in terms of its understanding of God's law as a law of love, and they see it merely as a list of prescriptions, do's and don'ts. Now, the problem occurs... When you have the church being composed of people who in almost every aspect of their life and most all their relationships are performers, they're legalists. Another word for legalism is performance. Performing in order to be accepted. Let me say it again. You say it. Performing in order to be accepted. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Few of you. Okay, this is the These guys are really acutely aware. Most everybody else is pretty well healed of that, isn't that one of them? <laughs> performing in order to be accepted. The problem is because you got so many people in the church like that who believe that if I'm if I'm performing, if I'm measuring up, I'm okay. If I'm not measuring up, I'm not okay. I'm to be condemned and or rejected. So you get what happens when you get people who are really concerned for for righteousness, zealous for righteousness, but on the other hand, they're legalists. What happens when a legalist deals with a problem of morality? What happens? How does a legalist deal with morality? Graciously? Kindly? Gently? Sensitively? No. A legalist does not at all deal with those things that way. A legalist deals with them very insensitively, very rigidly. Very judgmentally, very critically, condemningly, ultimately rejecting. If you have a zeal for righteousness, you combine that with legalism, you have always death. You have death. You don't have life. The church, designed by God to be indeed a fountain of life, has in many instances become an instrument of death in lots of people's lives. Church, God means church to be exciting. He means church to be fun. He means church to bring fulfillment. He means church to be awe-inspiring. He means church to be a blessing. He means church to be an avenue of life, not an instrument of death. And I would venture to say that Most people, as children, raised up in the church. When they got to be old enough where they could leave the church, they left the church. Why did they do that? Because church was not exciting, inspiring, a blessing. It was rather something that was absolutely devastating and awkward and difficult, boring, and on and on and on. And so we, we must understand what legalism does and how to recognize it in the church. Instead of, again, being that fountain of life, the church can be a place of just absolute death. And it's the rare church that escapes all taint of legalism. Now, again, I... I am blessed and pleased to be the pastor of this church. And I'm thankful for God's grace to our church because I believe in so many ways we, we have escaped in the last 20 years of our, 21 years of our existence any substantial taint of legalism in our midst. Now we, we have pockets, we have issues we deal with and, and certainly every community will. But I think by and large... We are very, very fortunate, and we are very, very blessed. I am pleased and proud to recommend Hope Chapel. I enjoy recommending Hope Chapel. I have no qualms about recommending Hope Chapel. I know that when I recommend Hope Chapel, the people who run church or come out of other church environments don't know the Lord, I know that when they come here, they're going to be impressed. They're going to be impressed about the environment, the attitude, the, the feeling, the sense, the people. I know that. I can hardly wait for people to come here. I'm always talking to people, always inviting people to come to church, come visit. In fact, this last week, I had a conversation with a man at the health club. And
1: <laughs>
0: and, and he and I have talked on and off for for months now about... Christianity and the Lord and church and all these kinds of subjects. And, and he has a, a a Christian background. He knows about the Lord. He knows about church. He's attended church in his past. But he's one of these guys that's kind of scientific. You know, he's an engineer type and he's kind of gotten away from the, the real life of the church. And so we've been talking and I've been encouraging him and inviting him and, just this past week, he, he had been laid off a year or two ago from his work and aerospace engineer kind of guy, and, 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 but had gone on and found a new life in consulting and is doing wonderfully apparently. But in that whole process, he, he and his first wife had divorced. And he has just recently remarried. And I wasn't aware of this until our conversation this week. He said, you know, he said, you've been talking to me about church and stuff, and he says, you know, you might just see us in church, he and his new wife. His new wife is about 30 years younger than he is. He says, in fact, we have been attending a church. I didn't ask where, but he says, we've been attending a church, and my wife feels very, very awkward. He says, when we come in, because of the obvious age disparity, people stare. And she just she just feels so uncomfortable. She doesn't want to go to church anymore. I said, great, come to Hope. I said, come to Hope, you'll love it. I said, we got all, all ages, all sizes, all colors. We got everything at Hope. I said, you come to Hope? No one's going to stare at you. In fact, you'll be so busy staring at everybody else you'll never do. <laughs> Never notice if everybody anybody does stare at you. <laughs> so it's a constant delight to me to recommend our church to people and and I know that when they come they'll feel comfortable and they'll feel accepted and in fact, you know, you know the little cards we pass out each week, I tell people, you know, your first time, fill out the card and write your comments on the back and so forth. And invariably, because I read those cards every Tuesday morning. And amid the prayer requests, we pray over them. And, and, uh, and the, the various comments, invariably, week after week after week, comments come back on the back of those cards saying, you know, I've never been in a church like this. I felt so welcomed. It was so wonderful and so different. I never thought church could be like this. And those are common comments coming from a broad cross-section of people, and it's wonderful to get that kind of feedback. So I'd say that to you to assure you that our comments this morning about legalism in the church don't necessarily apply to us. However, I think it imperative that we as a congregation of people, understand what legalism is about and how it can infect a church. Okay? So, hence, let's talk about legalism in the church. How can we, or how do Christians, convey legalism to one another in the church? There's two major ways, and then the second... Uh, there are going to be six examples, and I'll run through those with you. But let me talk to you about the first major way in which legalism is, in fact, conveyed in church. This is through an overemphasis on externals. An overemphasis on externals. This is the idea that external things, things that a spiritual Christian does or does not do, You know, if you're really spiritual, you don't smoke, drink, dance a hoochie-coo, or go with those who do. (laughs) Did I get that right? (laughs) Now, don't misunderstand me. External things are important. But an overemphasis on external things is destructive. External things ought to be true expressions of devotion to the Lord. They must emanate from, they must originate from a genuine, vital relationship with the living God. If they do not, then they're merely externals. And they can be looked at as those things that really mark a spiritual Christian, just into externals. The tragedy is that so many of the more important, the more weighty issues of the faith take on lesser importance or become, in effect, non-existent when you're overemphasizing externals. The outward, obvious things are the ones that receive the most attention, Now, look at Matthew chapter 23. Jesus points this out for us. Matthew 23, verse 23. He's in the midst of a scathing attack on the legalists of his day, the religious ones of his day. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he doesn't disregard externals. Tithing. And and these guys were extremely scrupulous in their tithing. They would tithe of their their, um, spice gardens, you see. And he says, don't don't neglect that, but the more important things are the things you're neglecting. You were so emphasizing the externals that you missed the real issues, the most important issues. He says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You, in effect, are missing the big picture. And you know, when you're focusing in on just the... the, the the minutiae, the straining out a gnat, the external things. When you pour all of your attention, all your energy on those things, you do miss the big picture. Sometimes you've got to stand back, and that's what we're doing. We're just kind of taking a step back, and we're we're, we're looking, and we're saying, oh, yeah, we've got to have some perspective here. Because it's easy for us to get caught up in externals. Why? Because we are, by nature, performers. We're by nature people who are constantly concerned with measuring up to be accepted. And this, in fact, is destructive. He goes on and he says in verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Vile inside, but the outside sure looks good. He says, blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. See, if you start on the inside, if you work on the inside, if you're dealing with the inside issues, the issues no one can see except you and God, sometimes you can't see them too clearly either. But if you're working on the internal issues, then the outside will be clean. But if you focus only on the outside, the inside never gets dealt with. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Hypocrisy and wickedness will run rampant in us, in our lives, unless we keep that stuff in check, if we're just focused on externals only. You know, the Pharisees were wonderful. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to his disciples about prayer and fasting, and he tells them, he never tells them not to fast. He says, when you fast, assuming that they will be, have seasons of fasting, he says, when you fast, don't do it as the Pharisees do it. The Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Did you know that? Mondays and Thursdays. You say, why did they fast on Mondays and Thursdays? Because Mondays and Thursdays were shopping days. Well, so what? What's the connection? Well, shopping days, everybody's out. What better time to demonstrate your righteousness than on shopping day when everybody can see it? And so the Pharisees wouldn't fast in secret. They wouldn't be in the temple courts. They'd be out on the busiest street corners so everybody could see. And they would have on their old clothes. They would have on a glum expression. Of course, everybody knows when you're fasting, you should be very glum. So that you look spiritual. And people would walk by and they would say, My, how spiritual. (laughs) But you see, when there's an overemphasis on externals, there's no life inside. Have you ever tried to keep up appearances? And there's no dynamic inside that enables you to keep up the appearance or that the appearance emanates from? Smiling. Have you ever tried to keep smiling? When there's no joy there? When there's no real energy to, that gives rise to the smile spontaneously? But you're just into smiling. <laughs> My wife was a flight attendant for 20 years. She told me this story, I'll just never forget it. She flew for American Airlines for 20 years. And she, early in her career, be- had become a Christian. And she was just zealous for Jesus. She would tell Jesus, tell everybody about Jesus, other flight attendants, uh, pilots, clients. She had, she had one guy who was a passenger on her plane. I'll never forget this. She called me from some Buffalo, New York, or someplace one night. And she says, oh, I've got to tell you, let this guy to the Lord. And I said, wonderful. She had this guy in the aisle, kneeling down in the aisle, praying the sinner's prayer on a full load to Buffalo. She was one of the first Christian evangelistic flight attendants in American Airlines. And uh, they nicknamed her early on the Flying Nun. She told me this story, and this kind of connects with what we're talking about in terms of externals. She said she was boarding a, a 747 one time, you know, taking the tickets and directing people where they sit, you know. And she was just going through the tickets, and, you know, I mean, three, four hundred people getting on this airplane. And she just wasn't paying much attention, and, and some guy comes up to her. There's always one in the crowd says, smile. She looked at him. She smiled. She says, You smile. Now hold it for 12 hours.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you see, when there's just an emphasis on external with no internal dynamic to keep it up, you can't do it. And when a church is emphasizing only the externals, not dealing with internal dynamics, and that's why this class that's coming up next month called self-confrontation is going to be so exciting because it's going to help rip off some masks and it's going to be dynamic in terms of helping people begin to deal with internal issues so that you don't have to be concerned with just the externals but when you got a church that's overwhelmed and over over emphasizing externals everybody learns to be an actor We're very good at teaching how people be how to be actors. We say, "Act like a Christian." Oh, okay. So you look around, see what all the people are acting like, and you too become one of the actors. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? So we want to be very, very careful about an overemphasis on externals because, in fact, they don't bring life; they rather bring death. Do you know that? And we see that in Jesus' condemnation of externalism. Now, the second way in which we can convey, if we allow it, can convey legalism in the church is by judging in the church. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judging in the church. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. In other words, what goes around comes around. And not only that, he says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. So as you sow, so shall you reap. It's an inescapable law. It's always, it's always dogging at our heels. Verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Hmm. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Beautiful use of hyperbole, wouldn't you say? <laughs> you hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Have you ever seen something in somebody's life that needs addressing? But the same thing is in your life. I used to do a lot of counseling, marriage counseling. I could dispense wise counsel. I knew what the Bible said. Say, well, you should do thus and such and thus and such and thus and such. And those little voices would say, are you doing it? <laughs> are you doing that in your marriage? I go, ooh, ooh, ooh. So I'd have to run home and take the plank out of my eye and make sure that my marriage was in shape before I could come back and do counseling because it was a miserable experience to counsel people knowing that I wasn't doing the things I'm telling them to do. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) You've got to move the plank out of your own eye. Now, what's the only one thing that you can judge? If you're going to judge somebody, what's the only one thing you can judge? Behavior. You can only judge behavior. Guess what you can't judge, but which we always try to judge? Motives. You can't judge motives. You can't? No, you can't. Why? Because how can I judge, or how can you judge me when I don't know why I do what I do? We say to people, I know why you did that. No, you don't. I don't even know why I did it. How can you know? You say, well, how can you say that? How do you know that we can't judge motives? Because the Bible says we can't. The Bible says very clearly in Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The obvious answer to that rhetorical question is no one can understand it. That's why in the next verse, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. God's the only one that can know our motives. God's the only one that can truly know our heart. Everything we do, we do from mixed motives, I believe with all my heart. So when you do something, you don't do it from pure motive. Why? Because you're not perfect. You can't do anything from pure motive. It's always mixed. So how in the world can you figure it all out? Well, 20% for this, 20% for that. No, it's all mixed up. But we've got all sorts of people who purport to be professionals who say, I know why you do what you do. No, you don't. You can't possibly know. Only God can know. Only God can know. And so when you and I judge, all we can judge is behavior, not motives. We must deal with the behavior in our own life before we go and try to deal with the behavior in somebody else's life. If we don't, we have trouble. Real trouble. Whenever you point one finger, someone said three fingers are pointing back at you. Whew, what an indictment. I know about you. Oops. <laughs> Those three fingers point back back at us. Well, how do we, in fact, judge? Let me give you six ways in which it is possible to judge and hence convey legalism in the church, okay? The first one is the most common way of expressing judgment, and every single one of us have been guilty of this. Someone does something improper, unchristian, and oh, how quickly the word spreads. What am I talking about? Gossip. Oh, man. And even true gossip is still gossip. Isn't that true?
1: <laughs>
0: it's good to have you, Cindy, sitting there. I
1: <laughs>
0: yes, I know you are. You always do. Have you heard? Ooh, everybody leans for Have you heard? Have you heard what? Have you heard about the pastor? <gasps> no, what about the pastor? <laughs> have you heard about... Oh, have you heard about Mr. and Mrs. Who are leaders in the church and upstanding and everybody knows them? Oh, no, what about them? Oh, they're having problems. Oh, what kind of problems? Is it not easy to get sucked into that stuff? Oh, have you heard about John? No, what about John? Do you know that he's cheating on Mary? Oh, no. Who with? <laughs> gossip. The stories spread, and as they spread, they get blacker and blacker and blacker, don't they? We have this wonderful fascination with, with gossip. We, we hear the story, and uh, it's, not, it's not quite juicy enough. So we <laughs> embellish it a little bit more, and we pass it on, and the next guy's got to embellish it a little bit more. And so it very, very seldom resembles initially what it started out to be, and what happens to people and their reputations. What happens in the life of the church? With gossip. This is what the Bible has to say about gossip. Proverbs 11.13. Proverbs 11.13. A gossip betrays a confidence. Be careful who you share, what you share with. Proverbs 16.28. A gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 18.8. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. Ooh, tasty. Mm. Proverbs 26, 20. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. In Romans chapter 1, verse 29, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness and against those who suppress the truth of God through their wickedness, in the latter part of that chapter... After he says, for a third time, and he gave them over, but the third time, Paul says, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done, to become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil. In verse 29, right after that, he says, that which is characteristic of a depraved mind, that which is symptomatic of a depraved mind, is, among other things, gossip. 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 In Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twenty, Paul writing to the Corinthian church saying he wants to come and visit them, he says, But when I'm afraid I come when I come to you, I'm afraid that I'm gonna find in your midst gossip. Why? Gossip tears the church apart. Destroys the church. Gossip is judging. 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 And as a result of judging, condemning. And a result of condemning, rejecting. And it tears the church apart. And gossip, by the way, in the church can be sanctified. Do you know that? There is such a thing as holy gossip. There is holy gossip? Yes. This is, this happens in prayer meetings. Yes, prayer meetings where Mary, who regularly attends a prayer meeting, isn't there that time, and all the other members of the prayer meeting are there, and someone comes who knows that Mary's having a particular problem, and comes and says, we need to pray for Mary. Everybody says, oh, okay. What's the matter? Well, I I can't tell you, but it's pretty bad. What have they just done? Set everybody up, right? Mary has an unspoken request. Oh, but what is it? Oh, I can't tell you. Be gossip. What have you been doing already? And so they pray, and everybody prays for the needs, and all the needs are taken, and they're all prayed for. And this very wonderful, gracious prayer is prayed for Mary, and all of a sudden someone comes over after the prayer meeting's all over. They get over to this person who's come and they said, What's Mary's problem?
1: I can't tell you. Why? Because there'll be gossip. Yes, but if you told me, I'd know how to better pray for her.
0: (laughs) Sure. Sure. If you're not part of the problem or part of the solution to the problem, you have no need to know. Right? Right? You have no need to know. It's always a good rule of thumb to carry with you. So beware of gossip. The second, another way of judging or condemning, is by shunning. A, don't measure up. B, don't agree with us. Or C, aren't our kind. There's always people like that, aren't they? Don't measure up, disagree with us, or aren't our kind. And we in effect wind up being tempted to exclude those people. Somebody says or does something to you that displeases you, you don't like them, and therefore you exclude that person. You say, in effect, well, heck with you. I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna let you into my life anymore. So we exclude that brother or that sister in Christ from our fellowship, from our love, and we end up putting that person down as not worth our time, and we judge them and teach them the true meaning of non-grace. Reject them. Now listen to Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12... There are some verses that speak to not exclusion, but rather inclusion. The community of God, God's people, needs to be an inclusionary community, not an exclusionary community. Would you agree with me? Sure. And Paul says, as you're being transformed in your life, from verse 2 of chapter 12, these other things will be characteristic of you. You'll be a person who will be much more inclusionary rather than succumbing to the temptation to be exclusionary. Verse 9, he says... Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. If you are a person who is exclusionary, your love is not sincere. (coughs) Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's not a normal tendency to honor the people above ourselves. But as we're growing and maturing in Christ, we're going to tend to honor one another people and include them rather than exclude them in our life. He says in verse 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to people uh, be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17 do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. He's talking about being a person who's not exclusionary but inclusionary. And by excluding people, we just end up condemning and rejecting. A third way some of us, instead of gossiping or excluding people, shutting them out, specialize in put downs. Some people and Christians are very, very good at put downs, either verbal or nonverbal put downs. In Romans chapter 14 verse 1, Paul says, "Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters." Be careful about how you deal with disputable matters and passing judgment on people because we eventually end up in putting people down. How many times have you heard or have you said possibly something like this? You did what? I can't believe you. Oh, no. Are you serious? Or here's the great one. The proverbial rolling of the eyes. No. no. Now, if you're on the receiving end of any one of those kinds of things, how do you feel? Do you feel edified? Built up? Valued, encouraged, accepted. (coughs) No, not at all. You feel what? Rejected, judged, and condemned, right? So we must be careful and aware that a form of judging is the put-down. And often that happens when people are discussing doctrine. You ever watched two people discuss doctrine? It quickly degenerates from a discussion to an argument, and pretty soon one of the persons are putting down the other person, belittling them as well as their position. D, our fourth one, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, the first four verses, Peter urges elders in the church, leadership in the church, to shepherd the flock as examples of unselfishness and humility. Now this is an issue that I must contend with and other leaders and other pastors of other churches must also contend with. For we can convey judgment in the church by condemning the uncommitted. Condemning the uncommitted. We express judgment and condemnation indirectly by a continual pressure On those who are perceived to be the uncommitted to be more committed and more involved in the activities and in the programs of the church Now you have to understand the context here The program of the church is designed to better equip and enhance the life of people in the church make sense and so we come up with programs and such and such and so From a pastoral point of view, the pastor looks and sees there is a need for greater commitment on the part of the people. Would you agree? There's need for growth in everyone's life. So you design these programs which you think will enhance their growth. But then, because you are so zealous for the people and so zealous that they grow, it's easy to bring pressure on the people to participate in the program. So the program, in effect, becomes the end-all. And the people don't feel blessed. They feel what judged and condemned for their lack of participation. Now, I've done that. I've, I've brought judgment and condemnation on the congregation in, in my efforts to encourage people. Notice that word, encourage. To become involved so they can grow and mature more. The challenge is to really, truly encourage people to be involved without bringing an attitude of judgment and condemnation, which only in the end undercuts the very desire to be involved in the first place. And so, for my part, I confess my sin to you, and I receive your forgiveness, and I (laughs) repent. Now, let me get to point E. Point E follows point D because it has to do with the perfectionistic demands that the congregation has for the pastor. Now, I want you to know that this does not describe you guys, by and large, although there are pockets, there are people in our church over the years who have expected me to be everything to them, which is practically impossible. However, most people understand that that's an impossibility, and so we don't experience this much in our church at all. See, we can't be too quick to blame Church leadership, uh, because in some instances, while they may in fact condemn people for lack of commitment, people are just as often guilty of judging and condemning church leadership. Perhaps no one in our society lives in such a goldfish bowl as does the pastor and his family. Let me describe to you what I mean. The pastor has to be nearly a perfect Christian, everyone else can be excused here and there, but not the pastor. In his private life, he has to be the perfect husband and the perfect father, yet he is not allowed the time that being a perfect husband or perfect father demands. In his ministry, he has to exercise a greater variety of gifts than God ever gave any single human being.
1: <laughs>
0: Laugh. You're going you're to pastor. <laughs> He has to be good at visitation, he has to be good at counseling, he has to be good at administration, he has to be good at community leadership, he has to be good at everything he does. He's got to be at the church all the time, he's got to do all the weddings, he's got to do all the funerals, he's got to do all the difficult and dirty work of the church, he's got to be at all the meetings. And then, of course, after all that, he's expected to produce good and thought-provoking sermons each and every week. And if he fails, woo, watch the tongues wag. He's in big trouble. You see, very often congregations judge the pastor. And I'm thankful that, that we don't, I don't, and the pastoral staff, we do not experience that to any significant degree at all in the life of our church. We're substantially free from that. For that, I am blessed. Happy is the pastor. That is himself so solidly grounded in the grace of God that he can walk unscathed through the furnace of continual criticism without becoming embittered, without becoming a man pleaser, or without leaving the ministry for freer and more lucrative work. We don't do this for the money, by the way. Most of us can make much more money on the outside using our gifts and talents and abilities than are paid. But you know, in my life as a pastor, for the past nearly 15 years now, I have met many, many men who have been in pastoral ministry for varying lengths of time. And, And periodically, someone will come to me and introduce themselves out of the congregation. They say, you know, I've been sitting in your church for several months now. And I've been a pastor. And we'll go off to the side or or he'll ask if we can meet and talk and he'll want to share with me uh, what's happened in his life. And it's one of those three things. Either they've been terribly embittered and beat up by a congregation and they've left hurt and bleeding and they've just come to sit here to recuperate and heal, scared to death to let anybody know they're a pastor. Or they've degenerated into becoming a man-pleaser, just going along with the crowd and so scared to stand up for what's true and right because of the criticism and what people will think. Or even people who've just left the ministry, burned out because they've, not just, they've just not been able to make it, not been able to handle it. I've talked to those men. I've met them. I've met them at seminars. I've met them here. I met him in other church environments. A friend of mine just recently dropped out of the ministry. Just, just devastated. And I'm, I'm heart sick for him. And so that's just another way of judging in the church. And we, again, beloved, must be aware of that. The last way, another symptom of non-grace is wearing of a spiritual mask. All of us have come to know that for the person that doesn't quite measure up, there is reserved for that person judgment, condemnation, and rejection. So, we all learn to wear the mask, a spiritual mask. The very thought of vulnerability, the very thought of transparency, the very thought of being open is absolutely terrifying. This is why mini-church can be so important. Because that's the environment where we get to practice some of those things. Let me share with you two verses. One from Proverbs Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And James adds as a corollary to that. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another... And pray for each other so that you may be healed. See, there's great intrapersonal healing occurs when we risk and are open. When we risk taking off the mask that we have worn in order to project a certain image. And most Christians today wear what I would call the nice guy mask. The nice guy mass, Nice guy image. And his, what the, his, this, this is what the nice guy image looks like. Sounds wonderful. Sounds like what we all aspire to. Devoted to the Lord's work. Loves his word. Walks in sweet fellowship with Jesus. Brings every thought and attitude captive to Christ. Under the control of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Does that sound desirable? Does that sound like the kind of life that we want to portray? Sure, absolutely. But those aspects, those qualities that we portray must be the genuine product of a vital relationship with Christ. If not, if they're just a mask, if they're just pretend, if we're just acting, they're deadly. They're deadly. How do you feel when you're measuring up? How do you feel about yourself when you're measuring up? Feel good? Feel like now you're part of the spiritual elite? You find that when you can pray, when you're measuring up, you can pray for those who have not yet got the victory. It's kind of a spiritual snobbery when you're into performing, into measuring up. You're wearing a mask. Now let's look at the flip side. How do you feel when you're not measuring up? How do you feel when you're not performing up to snuff, up to everybody's expectations, or at least your perceived expectations? How do you feel? Is fellowship with God's people a wonderful experience at that point, or is it a painful experience? Painful. Most of us would avoid it. When we don't feel we're measuring up, even if we come into the congregation, we come into the presence of God's people, those who know us. They may not know what's going on or not going on in our life. They know, we think that they know that we're not measuring up. Every eye can see right through us. And it's not a joyable experience. You don't want anybody to ask you the question How's your Bible reading? you ever had anybody ask you that? I mean, when you know you're not measuring up, you're not keeping up with the daily Bible, you're two days behind instead of four months behind. How do you feel? How do you respond when people say, how's your Bible reading? Oh, it's not where it ought to be. What's that mean? I'm not doing it. <laughs> how's your prayer life? Oh, it's it's probably not where it ought to be. What's that mean? I don't have one. <laughs> but it's a safe way of saying it, isn't it? You don't have to divulge. How many of us have gone into these gone into our groups, gone into our meetings, and and we know we're not measuring up, we're not performing, because in our estimation we've got to be performing. There's no real heartfelt love and desire and relationship with Christ, but we're just into externals, we're performing, we're wearing our mask. We keep up the weak smile. If you say, how are you? I'm thankful. <coughs> it's not an easy thing to be in God's, with God's people. If you're operating with a performance mentality. Because even in those environments, even if you open up Many times the opening up also is an expression of performing because in opening up, you're hoping to somehow earn a smile from God or earn the approval of your brothers and sisters. You're still earning. Rather than confessing your sin, as James says, experiencing godly sorrow and genuine repentance. That brings life not wearing a mask, not pretending to be spiritual. And even in our confessions, there can be pretenses to true spirituality. Beloved, we sing stirring songs about God's grace and acceptance of us. We acknowledge it, but are we experiencing it and are we accepting one another? We must be aware, just constantly sensitive to the tendency to not be gracious. Next week, we're going to talk about the marks of a gracious church. We're going to talk about our church next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your grace to us. I thank you, Lord, for church. I thank you for our church. I thank you, Lord, that your hand of blessing and protection and grace has been on our church ever since its inception. Lord, keep us aware of the heritage and keep us faithful and sensitive to the leading of your spirit. We love you this morning, and we bless you.
1: By your love We're baptized into one body, help us see how we fit.